Great to be with you all. Uh, my name is Jonathan. I'm the campus pastor here with uh, Reform University Fellowship. Um, I hope you all had a good week. I had an okay week. Um, could have been better, could have been worse. Um, but I'm here, and we're all here. So it's good to see you all. Um, so RUF, we're a Christian group. If you're uh, here, you're not sure what we're doing here. Um, and we're trying to find the intersection of faith and life, faith and college. Where do those overlap? First, we're trusting that it actually exists. There is an overlap there. Um, and we think that it actually can be found by studying the Bible. Uh, that as we study the Bible together in song and tonight and in, 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 uh, in this part of it, um, that we can see some overlap between those. Um, so that's what you're here for. If, if you're not sure what that means, come talk to me. I'd love to hear what you're thinking and experiencing, and we can chat about that. Um, if you're, uh, you know, if you like RUF, you're like, hey, this is a good vibe. There's some things happening here. Bring a friend. Um, we want to be a place that blesses not just you, but also the people in your network. So just say, hey, there's this thing I do. It's different sometimes. It's fun sometimes. It's challenging sometimes. You should come with me. If you don't like what we do, come talk to me. And I want to hear more because we are not a perfect group and we have a lot of room to grow. So um, not that I can change it, but we can brainstorm and come up with that. So um, talk to me, talk to Rachel. Uh, and then we'll do that Friday lunch tomorrow. We're going to study Reformed theology. We're called Reformed University Fellowship. When I was in New York City, there were a bunch of Reformed Jews. And everyone thought, Reformed? You, thought, you, know, you guys are a bunch of Jews. They asked me all the time, are you Jewish? I was like, no. But people here don't know what Reformed means either. So come, what is Reformed theology? We're just going to do this for six weeks. Because I know that once week six happens in the spring semester, everybody's done with RUF. So we're just going to do six weeks on what is Reformed theology tomorrow, one after a Friday lunch. Come hang out. Um, so what are we doing that large group for a few weeks? We are doing a high view, a big pass over what the Bible calls the minor prophets, which are a part of the Bible that is often really ignored. Nobody reads them really. I struggle to read them. Um, they're misrepresented. They get a lot of bad press sometimes. And so that's what we're doing is we're just looking at one book a week for a few weeks. There's more than we can fit in. Um, but what we're going to do is just look and see this part of the Bible that we don't really read very much. Does it apply to our lives? And so we are going to look at tonight the book of Joel. The book of Joel. And uh, there is a lot in this book. Um, if I can find it. Um, and here it is. So the book of Joel, which is a really important, uh, it has this, this amazing theme throughout the book. The main point of the book of Joel is this idea called the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. And so we're going to spend a lot of time tonight explaining, examining, and trying to apply what does the day of the Lord mean to you and to me and to our lives as Christians. And so tonight what we'll see is that the day of the Lord is a terror on the wicked and a vindication of the righteous faithful. It's a terror on the wicked and a vindication of the righteous faithful. So there's two parts there, terror and vindication or hope. And so we'll, we'll look at that and go with it. Um, there is a lot of text on this piece of paper tonight, so I'm going to read it not all at once. We're just going to pick through it as we go along to try and save some time. Um, but as I'm up here speaking, and if you have thoughts or uh, responses, questions, my phone number is on this. So send me a question, and I will respond. I won't always answer to our greatest satisfaction, but at least respond to your questions, and we can have a dialogue about them. Anonymously. Anonymously. I'm not going to be like, Michaela, that was a stupid question. I'm not going to do that. Um, unless it's Michaela, and then I might do it. So, all right, so let's, uh, let me pray real quick, and we'll dive in. 
Father, we pray as we come to this part of our week, of our time here tonight where we study your word, we need your help. Because your word is really big and scary and intimidating, but also so good when we sit in it. So please um, calm our minds from all the things that have happened this week. Let us be present with you. Let us be present in what you're teaching us and equip us to know and love each other and know and love you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, so uh, we're going to start off by looking at, so big ideas that the day of the Lord is a terror on the wicked and vindication of the righteous. So let's first look at, well, I'll read, I'll just read a bit of this and then we'll stop there. So let's start at the beginning. Uh, chapter 2, verse 1 says this, Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness, there is spread, is spread, there is, there is spread among the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before. Nor will it ever again after them, through all the years of all through the years of all generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance was like the appearance of horses, and their war and like war horses they run. Like the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the top of the mountains, like a crackling of flame of fire, devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? All right, so you you get the idea right off the bat, right? So first thing that we're going to see here is the day of the Lord is a terror on the wicked. So before we can understand that, we need to zoom out a little bit and see what what is Joel writing about? What is the historical events or context that's happening in Joel's world? And so Joel is a historical prophet. He lived um, about 700 years before Jesus was born in Israel. And scholars don't know a whole lot about what's going on around his time, but we can make some pretty educated guesses um, that this book was probably written uh, right after Israel had been invaded and conquered by the Babylonian Empire, right? So the Babylonian Empire, based in now modern-day Iraq, launched a military campaign into what is now modern-day Israel. And so they come out of the north and they they invade and and destroy modern-day Israel, right? And they take a bunch of Israelites into captivity and they take them back to what is Babylonia into, uh, and then they're exiles there, right? And so now Joel writes this book about something that just happened in the geopolitical world and he writes a theological explanation of what is happening, right? He's saying this just happened, but let me interpret and explain what just happened from the theology from what is happening from God's perspective. And so if you imagine your home country, wherever you're from, has been invaded, and your city and your culture and your family have been largely obliterated by a, by a, by a, by a foreign army. That's something not many of us will hopefully have to experience. But you would be feeling probably a tremendous amount of loss, a tremendous amount of questions, a tremendous amount of what is happening, fear. I don't know what's going on. And so it's into that moment that Joel writes. And so here's where he starts. He starts off what we just read. Blow a trumpet in Zion, which is Zion is another way of saying Israel, God's, where God's people live. And trumpets are like the early warning systems or signals of something, an invading army is coming. 
They were the early warning of foreign invasion. So he sound the alarm, invaders. And then he says, let all the inhabitants tremble for the day of the Lord is coming, it is near. Then he goes on to use several figures of speech to describe what's happening. And he uses fairly ominous terms, right? A a day of darkness, a consuming fire, a a ravaging uh, army on a campaign. And so these are word pictures here which evoke great, powerful, natural, or man armies that bring destruction to everything in the way. And as he's describing this, of course, it would have triggered in the Israelites, the original audience's mind, maybe even triggered them in a traumatic way of what they remember had happened, of this army coming and just obliterating their culture, their lives. This, This massive Babylonian army, hundreds of thousands of soldiers invading, and destroying their capital city and taking them into captivity. And so then this goes into, well, why did this happen? Why did the Babylonians invade Israel? And the rest of the prophets, particularly uh, other ones you know, we've looked at, but even Joel talks about, well, the reason is because the Israelites had rejected God, right? They, God, they had sinned against him, so God had entered into a promised relationship with the Israelites, what the Bible calls a covenant. And, and God had said, hey, worship me alone, serve me alone, and I will be your God, and you will be my people, and it's going to be really sweet. And Israel eventually says, nah, we're not interested in that. We're going to do our own thing. And with that, they start to turn to the other gods and idols around them. And not, not only that, but they begin to... Uh, along with worshiping other gods, bring in a litany, a whole bunch of other social and individual sins, like allowing systemic oppression, overpowering the, the weak in the society, sexual sin, all kinds of wickedness. And God had warned them from the beginning, hey, if you break the promised pact with me, and if you let this other stuff happen, I'm going to break my promise, then, then I'm done, there has to be consequences for that. You start doing these things, foreigners are going to invade you. And so what this means is that sin and wickedness brings discipline or even punishment. Fire and darkness and rumbling armies ravage Israel because of their wickedness, right? And so the first meaning here of the day of the Lord is that God is disciplining wickedness. God is disciplining and even punishing Israel's rejection and their sin against God, right? And so, but, but the day of the Lord, it goes beyond that, right? Stay with me. I know some of you are like, oh, this is why I don't like the minor prophets. Stay with me, right? The day of the Lord is God's discipline against wickedness. First of Israel's sin and the rejection of God. But it goes beyond that. It does not, it's not just that God is just breaking, just hurting Israel because it, the day of the Lord is actually against any wickedness anywhere, any wickedness anywhere. Later on in the book, the day of the Lord's punishment gets doled out, gets administered to the other nations, to nations like Babylon and Tyre and other nations around it. And so even nations that oppose and oppress God's people, they get the punishment of the day of the Lord. Look with me at uh, chapter 3 on the other page. It says, verse 3, verse 1, it says, Behold, in those days and at that time I will restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. We'll get to that in a second. I will gather all the nations 
and bring them to the valley of Jehoshaphat. I'll talk about that. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel because they have scattered them, that is Israel, among the nations and divided up my land. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations. Gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I, this is God speaking, will sit to judge the surrounding nations. Put to the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in and tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon undarkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. So here, all of a sudden, the day of the Lord gets expanded. It's not just God punishing Israel for their rejecting relationship with him, but it gets expanded to even nations, people who are outside of God's people. The nations are brought into this punishment of wicked of the day of the Lord, right? So you see see here, and, and and the valley of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat literally means Yahweh or God will judge. Yahweh or God will judge. And so here it is, it's expanding out to say anytime there's wickedness, God is saying, I will bring judgment, my army, my, my fire, onto that. Wherever evil is great. Any idea, in the, in the, the, the word of winepress and treading grapes, that's the idea of punishment happening, going on. So, what is going on here? <laughs> what is this? Well, Joel is showing us that the day of the Lord is a moment when God will assess and judge wickedness anywhere, anywhere, and condemn it. The day of the Lord is a moment when God will assess and judge any wicked. Sometimes it's against Israel, his people in their wickedness. Sometimes it's against the nations. Anybody who's not Israel in their wickedness, doesn't matter. Any wickedness, he will judge. So what is the day of the Lord? The day of the Lord is when God's wrath is poured out on all sin. It's a day of the Lord is when God's wrath is poured out on all sin. Now, to us modern academics, we hear that and we go, ooh, don't like it. I don't, that now that you're like, this is why we don't read the Minor Prophets, because it's about an angry, capricious God who just punishes people. And so you might think, or definitely your non-Christian minds, friends might think, see, the Bible's about a judgy God, and I don't want anything to do with him. But I want to press into that for just a second ask, do you really want a God or a universe where evil is not punished? And let me, let me put it to you this way. How many of you all, when you were in high school, read a diary of Anne Frank? Or maybe in a college, you read the diary of Anne Frank, right? So, diary of Anne Frank, most of us have read it. Anne Frank was a, Jew, a, a Jewish girl in World War II, and she lived in modern-day Amsterdam, still is Amsterdam, um, and she was hiding from the Nazi Holocaust, right? And with her family, and she was, you know, because if the Nazis found her, they would put her into a concentration camp. And so she wrote this amazing diary that's just about her experience of hiding and the fear and how scared she was and all this stuff. Um, eventually, someone betrays her and her family, right? And she gets captured along with her family, and her whole family gets put into Auschwitz, which was a death camp, not just, and and her whole family. The only survivor is her father, right? And Anne Frank is is a victim of the Holocaust, right? Um, No one knows who betrayed her. And just 
yesterday I heard on the radio that some bored FBI agent was in Amsterdam and just like, I'm going to open this case up. So he's been studying this for the last few years, and he finally got a lead on the guy who they think betrayed Anne Frank. And so they think they've got a name, but he's long gone. Like, it's been 77 years since this has happened, right? So the person who betrayed a Jewish family to certain and horrid death will never face justice. And Anne Frank, who died a horrible death, will never be vindicated. Right? That's just the world we live in. That's just, that's what happened. And it doesn't really matter if we know who the new suspect is. There's never really justice for Anne Frank, right? And so here's the question I put to you. Do you want to live in that world? Do you want to live in the world where the person who betrays Anne Frank, nothing happens? And the poor Anne Frank and her family, nothing happens? I can say that I don't want to live in that world. I don't want to live in the world. I need a universe. I need a world where even when the human legal system fails, someone is going to bring justice against wickedness. That when bad things happen to innocent people, someone's going to say, I will make it right. And friends, the Bible says that the day of the Lord is that promise. That any wickedness, any injustice anywhere, God says, I will not let it stand. I know about it and I will judge it. I will bring righteous judgment on wickedness. And that's good news because you and I live in a world where we need that kind of protection, that kind of justice, right? So that's the first point is that the day of the Lord brings punishment on wicked. But that's not all. The day of the Lord also brings vindication and hope on the repentant faithful. The day of the Lord also brings vindication and hope on the repentant faithful. Look at chapter 2, verse 11 through 13 again. The Lord utters his voice behold his ar- and before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who ex- executes his word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can, stand, uh, who can endure it? Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding steadfast love, and he resents over disaster. So here it is, verse 11, it says, The day of the Lord is this awesome day. Who can endure it? The rhetorical point being no one. No one can endure this day. But then on a dime, verse 12, it changes gears. And it gives us a glimmer of hope. And it says, God here, it says those who turn to God in with repentance all of a sudden the day of the Lord becomes not a moment of disaster, but a moment of God's vindication. He will relent from the disaster. Put your shoes here for put your put yourself in the shoes of the original audience, the Israelites. Remember, they're experiencing, they had experienced the terror of the day of the Lord of this invading army. From because, because of their own wickedness. They had broken God's rules. They had violated, they deserved the punishment. And so here it says, God, yes, you will feel the terror and the discipline, the awe of the day of the Lord because of your sin. But if you repent and turn wholeheartedly from that, God says, I will not destroy you. 
Then he says verse 13. And in verse 13, it's a direct quote of Exodus 34. And in Exodus 34, God describes himself for the very first time to the Israelites, back when he was making the promise pact, the covenant with the people. And he says, do you know who I am? Let me tell you before I make this pact who I am. Who I am at my core. He tells us verse 13, and he tells us, I am the God who keeps promises. I'm gracious. I'm merciful. I'm really slow to get angry. I'm abounding in steadfast love. That steadfast love means promise-keeping, never-failing, never-going-away love. Love that fights to the end. He says, I I overflow in that promise-keeping love towards my people. So what this means is that when Israel turns to God, repents of their sins, and trusts themselves to them, He will deliver and protect them. And here's what's amazing, is to those who do that, the day of the Lord suddenly shifts from this day of awful condemnation and terror to this day of, God fights for me. God is on my side. God will protect and defend me. It comes from this day of terrible judgment to this day of vindication and hope and protection. Look at, ver- look at 13 through 14 of verse 3. Multitudes, multitudes in the de- valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near, the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkening and the stars withdraw their salvation. The Lord roars from Zion. He utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. See what's happening there in verse 16? That verse 16 says that the God who had previously gone to war against his people, when they repent, suddenly goes to war for his people. The destroying and terrifying God becomes a protecting and defending God. In verse 11, we see a God whose army none can withstand. In verse 16, we see a God who is a fortress, a refuge for his people. Isn't that amazing? That ama- the day of the Lord is both of those things. I can think of no better picture of this than in the last battle, which is a story of the, it's from the Narnia series. It's the last one. Uh, and the highest king of Narnia is this great lion named Aslan. And I think that's, I'm sure this is part of where the author gets this, is, is from this idea. And so at the last battle, it's the end of Narnia is taking place, this magical place, and Aslan is bringing all things to conclusion, right? And so there's these evil forces who are warring against Aslan, and there's the good Narnians who are with him. And at the very end, Aslan just lets out this mighty roar. And in that moment, it's amazing in the book, you have to read it, the enemies of Narnia, when they hear that roar, they are terrified. They're terrified because here is this incredible lion who is bringing destruction and pain and ultimate death upon them. But for all the Narnians, they hear the roar and they say, he fights for me. He defends me. He protects me. And so at the same time, the day of the Lord is this day of awful judgment on the enemies and awful protection on the friends. So the big question is, when is the day of the Lord? Like, all right, let's, when is this going to happen? What is this thing? And the best answer is, well, there have been many preparations, small mini days of the Lord, and, and, and the big one is still to come. One small one happened when the Babylonians invaded Israel. 
That was the day of the Lord. It tells us here. The day of the Lord. Blow a trumpet in Zion. The Babylonians are coming. And and repentant Israel is exiled to Babylon. But friends, there was another day of the Lord. This is amazing. There was another day of the Lord. Or a day where punishment was poured out on the wicked and salvation was brought to those who trust. And that was the day of the Lord when God poured out all his wrath on sin. And that was a day when God saved his people finally. Do you remember what happened when Jesus died? The sky got dark. The earth quaked. Nobody, everyone looks and says, what is happening? God poured out all of his wrath onto Jesus. All of his wrath was poured out completely, not upon humanity, but upon his dearest son, Jesus Christ. Jesus took all the wrath of God, all the punishment onto himself. It was a terrible day of the Lord brought upon Jesus Christ. And you know what? Anyone who trusts in Christ, suddenly that day became a source of God protecting, saving, redeeming us. Vindicating us. It became a source of hope. For all of us, the day of the Lord is the day when God's wrath was finally poured out on all sin. That is on Jesus. And God's redeeming vengeance redeems his faithful, those who trust in Christ. Isn't that amazing? That's what what Calvary is. That's what Jesus is. But you know what, friends? There's one more day of the Lord coming. There's one more yet to come. And Joel tells us, the Bible tells us, that one more time Christ will come to judge. And on that day, that final last day of the Lord... That is anyone, Israel or not, who is not allied, aligned, trusting in God, will be judged, will be condemned. Who opposes God, who does not repent, who does not turn to Christ in faith, it will be a terrible day of judgment. But to all who do trust in Christ, that day when Christ finally comes will be the final vindication, the protection, the hope, the joy. What we sang about In 10,000 times 10,000. That means the day of the Lord is always about Christ. It's always been about Christ. Either his coming at Calvary or his second coming when he comes again. Jesus is the center of the day of the Lord. The one who finally brings judgment on his enemies and the one who finally brings salvation to the faithful. Now, why does this theology matter? (laughs) Why does this matter? Because, friends, we need the day of the Lord. I need it. You need it. We need it personally and we need it cosmically. First, we need it personally. I talk to a lot of college students and all of us, in one way or the other, suffer abuse and pain and trauma from living in a world that beats us up. Right? Just like Anne Frank. Maybe not on that scale, but some things happen to all of us. We just say... I just got the short end of the stick. And it might not, like, you might not get vindication from that. The day of the Lord promises that you will. Wicked things happen to us. Death, abuse, trauma, unfair graves, things that come from Satan and cruel humans. And we need someone to deliver us and to vindicate us out of that. Abuse victim who never sees justice. The, race, the victim of racism who never sees justice. The person who suffers unfairly. Any kind of evil. The day of the Lord is hope that God will make it right. You need the day of the Lord. 
Second, we need it cosmically. Our world is a mess. You don't need me to tell that to, to describe it to you. Just read the news. Read about our school. Read about our state. It's a mess. Oppression, evil, abuse, invading armies, ongoing racism, aborted babies, persecuted churches. It doesn't matter. Things are terrible and tragic all the time. It's just, that's the way it is. And the day of the Lord is God's promise that no wicked deed will go unpunished. And that is our hope. Joel tells us that God does not ignore your personal pain or our cosmic pain, but will avenge. So what do we do with that? I think there's two things we need to do. First is we need to ask ourselves, what side of the day of the Lord are we on? There's an implicit question is, where do you fall? Are you on the side where the day of the Lord is is a terror and a judgment? Or are we on the side where the day of the Lord is hope and protection? Are we on the side where the day of the Lord is trusting in Christ and what he has done for us? And I don't say this to condemn you, friends. But I say this, that scripture asks you to assess yourself. Is the day of the Lord a good thing or a terrible thing? When you trust in Christ, friends, it's the best thing. It's a good thing. Second, hope in it. Think about the day of the Lord. Learn to trust when bad things happen in your life that God pays attention. He's paying attention to these things. For anyone who's grieving or sad or depressed or oppressed, which, friends, is all of us in greater or smaller ways, the day of the Lord is God's promise that he will not abandon you. That one day, He will aright all the wrongs in your life, in your family, in our world. Listen to the words of Joel 3. It says, this isn't on your text, but it says this, In that day, the final day when Christ returns, the mountains will drip sweet wine and the hills will flow with milk. Which is to say, when Christ returns on that day, you will prosper. You will be joyful again. You will delight in God because he finally saved you. Hope in that day. Let me pray. Father in heaven, I, I do pray that you would help us all to, uh, to trust the day of the Lord, to know that you are good, to have confidence in it, to know your word, to know that it's true, and that you would equip us to faithfully live as those who await the day. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.